Well, this morning we begin our first in a series of Advent sermons that will be preached with uh, the pastors um, this season. As we begin, uh, I want to offer a bit of a disclaimer. I want to acknowledge that Advent, even Christmas itself, Christmas Day, are not holidays decreed by God that you must observe. Now, we do this series on Advent, and we even do a Christmas service in a couple of weeks. Um, But we do that more because if we open our eyes, you see, unlike any other time of the year, Jesus is talked about. Jesus is talked about in the malls. You go over to your friend's house. uh, You hear music being played that mentions Jesus that is maybe the only time that name is ever in that house. It's all around. And so we as the church feel compelled to speak into that. So why do I need to go out of my way to say that God doesn't decree it? Uh, Well, I do so in order, in some sense, to free you up. Because however much religion is mixed with the holiday season... I want you to know that all the pressure you feel to get the right gifts, to send the cards off to the right people, to show up to the the right parties and make your appearances, to make sure you don't forget anybody that you're supposed to give a proper greeting to, all the expectations that you're supposed to meet, they are not from God. That's a burden that comes from man. And so when we feel guilt, if we feel guilt over these things, remember that's not guilt that God wants you to bear. In fact, God wants you to to be relieved, unburdened from the fact that you're chasing after the approval of man. Yet uh, we do want to speak into this season. And so we have chosen to reflect on a series of ancient prayers called antiphons. They are a series. In fact, there are typically seven of them. We will look at four of them. But they're uh, prayers from the ancient church. And for centuries, these, these have been sung in the services leading up to Christmas Day. They're prayers of longing, longing for, for Christ and for Christ to come again. You know, in that way, it it also serves the same purpose that Advent serves. Advent is never intended for us to keep looking backwards to when Jesus came as as a sweet little baby. The point isn't to draw our attention to what happened, but to actually point us forward, to to cry out for him to come again and to complete what he has started. And in that sense, the passage we're going to look at this morning is very fitting. It's the perfect way to start because it shows the yearning for what we do ultimately hope for. And the ancient antiphon in which it uh, comes from prays this, O morning star, splendor of light eternal, and son of righteousness, come and enlighten those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death. If you really resonate with that prayer, 
you'll see that it's a prayer longing for hope. It's a prayer in the midst of darkness calling out for some future where salvation will come. It's a prayer for heaven. And so we now turn to a vision, a vision that is the answer to that prayer, and to look once again at Christ as he comes again. But before we get to this text in Revelation, let's turn and ask God to bless uh, this. Father, thank you so much for your word, and we do pray that you will uh, attend to it uh, with a blessing, that you will allow us to hear So often, Lord, your word comes and it bounces off of us because of our cold hearts or because of our distraction or because of a million other things going through our mind. But Lord, we pray that today, right now, you will allow us to hear your word clearly and allow it to change our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to say that heaven can seem like Uh, the most impractical, unuseful thing that we can talk about this morning. Many of our conversations about heaven tend to focus on really trivial things. Like, what will it be like? How weird will it be? Can I fly? Will I have superpowers? Uh, Will will I be able to recognize people that I I long to see again? Can I get a really good pizza there? You know, speculation is fun, and uh, sometimes we're encouraged to, to sort of daydream about those things, but it's really impractical. It makes no impact on your life today. In fact, those who are more cynical about Christianity... They tend to pick on heaven as the very thing wrong with the faith. Christians are, you have heard it probably said, so heavenly-minded that they are no earthly good. And that line usually is there to criticize that Christians tend to avoid real problems in the world to focus on the next world. Similarly, others have blamed heaven for allowing and tolerating injustices, for seeing oppressive regimes or people in power and and allowing it to to continue unchallenged. That's Karl Marx's criticism when he says that Christianity is the opiate of the masses. The idea is that he's focusing on heaven there as the concept, that, that, that we will be complacent We will continue on and not to to raise a stink, even if things are miserable in this life. Give the oppressed the idea of heaven, and they will learn to have acceptance of miserable things today. Environmentalists can blame heaven to say that Christians are ready to move on. They they are only renting space here, uh, and so they don't care about where they live. You see, the common thread in all of these critiques is that heaven will draw your eyes off of the here and now onto something else. And when we do that, it becomes harmful 
we become negligent. Now, while the church may be guilty of that from time to time, that is emphatically not the picture of our future hope given in Scripture. In fact, I want to argue that there is not a more practical, there is not a more impactful subject that will transform the way you live your life today than what is offered in Revelation 21 and 22. The purpose of this passage is not to draw your eyes away from the here and now, but to have you focused on your life and transformed in a way that you see it completely different different terms. You notice that this hope in this passage is not even called heaven. It's called the new heavens and the new earth. Not leaning you to think about some distant world out there, but, but to focus again on this world being transformed and reshaped. In fact, it's the merger of heaven and earth together being remade. When we focus back on this world in this new and refreshing way, it challenges us to live differently. I want us to think about three different ways in which this transforms us now in this life. First, far from being the opiate of the masses to keep people content, this vision is designed to spur you on to being active, to live boldly for good. It's a call to boldness. It is the reason why we can stir things up, even if it's at great risk to our own lives. That is the reason why we are given the book of Revelation in the first place. God gave the church this vision because we need to look again at the circumstances of this life. It was written during a crisis in the early church. The Roman emperor, Domitian, had elevated himself to the position of a god, and he wanted to be worshipped as a god. And so Christians are left with a choice. They can either worship him, the emperor, and deny their faith, or they could stay firm to their faith and possibly lose their lives. The point here is that they needed to see their circumstances from a completely different point of view. Revelation isn't merely a book about the end times telling you what it will be like, but in many ways it is giving us a reinterpretation of this age. John is caught up into heaven and is given from heaven a perspective to see things the way God sees things. To understand things from God's point of view. Yes, things are dark now. Yes, things seem dire. But the things causing that darkness, the days are numbered. God has sealed their fate. And everything is pressing towards this day when God will make all things new. In terms of our antiphon this morning, we are not entering endless night where the days just keep getting darker and darker. This is not the depths of the darkness. 
Rather, it's the final hours of night. The morning star has already arisen. You know, throughout the Old Testament, the prophets, particularly those in the midst of exile, the one in the later periods of Israel's history, constantly looked forward to God returning again. When God would come, all, we, all these Old Testament prophets said, that's the day when healing would begin, when sins would be forgiven, when justice would be declared. And on that day, hope would be restored to Israel. And the overwhelming image that comes out in the prophets is a day, a day filled with light and brightness. And when Christ comes, we see hints of that, but we don't see it full-fledged. I think that is one of the reasons why Jesus refers to himself here in in, uh, chapter 22, verse 16, as the bright morning star. Do you see the implication? Because morning is coming. What is a morning star? The morning star is is the the promise that the day is on its way. It's typically Venus, a bright light in in the sky, even when it's dark. And you see it and you know you are mere minutes away from the day being flooded with light. Because Jesus is the morning star, we know that that day is a certainty that they will be here. Because morning comes, we don't shrink back. We stay and fight. We don't become complacent. This is the very fuel for us to become bold. That's what Revelation did to its first hearers. Those in the early church who read Revelation got empowered to live bold lives because they knew they weren't in the darkest times with more darkness to come. They saw the vision of what their hope would be. So that some people say that it's very hard for the church in the West to actually read the book of Revelation. Because we live such cushy lives. We live in a time of light and and darkness that is man-made. But it's only when we understand the the darkness and and grapple with it that we can see the hope that Revelation offers. It's for a people suffering. The early church stood up against the emperor. It could resist. It could stand because they knew their hope. I would argue, in fact, that it's, it's actually the secular view. Where, where life here is all that there is that's in most in danger of making us reluctant to stand up for what's right. You see, if this life is all there is, then you're going to be compelled not to live for others, but to live for yourself. If you have limited resources, you're going to constantly count the cost. Is this a, a thing worthy for me to actually spend my time with, give my life over to? If this life is all there is, then anything that's going to cause me to sacrifice will be threatening to me. Will I waste my time, my effort, 
my money on something. You think about the choice between self-gratification and self-denial. When this world is my one shot, I'm sorry, but I want to experience all the experiences that I can get. I want to taste all the tastes. I want to see all the sights. I want it all. I want to complete my bucket list. If this world is all there is, then I'm going to be living, in fact, with a, a, a FOMO, a, a, a fear of missing out on a cosmic scale. I got to get it in all now. The Christian life offers something differently. Because of what we see in Revelation 21 and 22, death is not the end of the world. That we can actually face a future, hope, beyond death. We can live for others because we don't have a limited amount of resources. We can risk loving. We can risk sacrificing. I don't have to swallow up life as a whole. I've got eternity to go see the Grand Canyon or to go see Paris or explore the galaxies. I don't know. It's, it's hard to know what Revelation 21 and 22 has for me. This world being remade in some way, but it offers glories. That I don't have to feel like I can get everything now. I don't need to be driven by self-gratification to chase sex on my terms. I don't need to hoard and get everything now and keep it for myself. I don't need to fit into everyone else's expectation of my timeline to be married when they tell me to be married, to have a career when people tell me to have a career. I don't need to fit into the timeline of my life that everyone has for me. The morning star has arisen. I know the day will come. That's how I would argue that we should view Christmas. Christmas is the morning star coming. It's the signal that the dark days are over. We now live in an age where the morning star has arisen. But I'm afraid that that Christians don't treat it that way. We either treat it like Christmas was the day and that we should expect everything now to be glorious and we're disillusioned and disappointed that it's not. Or we're, we're more common to say that there is no day coming and that we need to treat today like all we have. Because the day is coming, we should be living boldly, selflessly, sacrificially. Our budgets should expand to eternity. That's the first thing. Actually, a view from, if we focus on the hope that's offered here in in 21 and 22, then we should live boldly. Secondly, focusing on this vision of the final day actually shrinks the things that we fear in life. It overwhelms the things that overwhelm us. You all know what it's like to have something that you look forward to, something so amazing. I mean, kids, you're probably experiencing this now. I mean, you can get through the next few weeks of school or chores or whatever because you know that at the end of that is Christmas Day. 
And there's a, a sense in which the greatness of whatever you're hoping for tends to overshadow the things that you have to trudge through right now. That's the way Paul sees our focus on heaven. He says in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to compare with the glory that is to be revealed on the last day. Reflecting on that passage, Tim Keller says, actually, this is calling us to compare, to make the comparison. Take the thing that you're going through that's drudgery. Take the thing that you fear. Take the thing that you're anxious about and begin to compare it to that day. If you're really getting an image of this day, then all of a sudden the thing that you fear begins to shrink. It shrinks your problems. It shrinks your anxieties. If you really understand the vision that that is our hope, then all of a sudden the things that are so big now in our lives that, that seem so pressing become to get smaller. And most of all, you become smaller. You start to shrink in really healthy ways. Because the truth is, we all take ourselves far too seriously. We're too self-important. We we face a, a life where we feel the burden that every decision we make, every step that we, we take, every action, is so significant that it's going to change everything in my life. We feel like our, our hope is built upon this, this chain that's linked together, that we have to make all the right decisions, and if we mess up at one, one link, then the whole thing falls apart and we don't get our best life. That's a burden that you should not carry because you are not that important. And that's really good news. That is really good news. This, this perspective from Revelation says the glories of the new heaven and the new earth, all that we hope for, is not dependent on you. You are not working the levers of power in this world. It's good to do your work. It's good to, to go to your job and work at it for the Lord or to study for God and to serve him. But too often we get the message that all of a sudden it's supposed to have some cosmic significance and that my job needs to bear all this weight of changing the world. God's message is no. I am bringing the day. The morning star is arisen. And whether you succeed or fail in what you're trying to accomplish, that day will come. Amen. Parents, you, if you haven't learned this lesson, you will learn it. You, you cannot control your kids' lives. You can't engineer them to perfection. You can't change the world around them to such a degree that you will always keep them out of harm's way. You need to put them in the hands of someone who does control all things. That's the good news of Revelation 21. It should loom so large in our sights that it actually dwarfs the things that we fear. Christmas tells us that the morning star is arisen. 
hope is starting to pierce this world. Put that quote in the uh, front of your bulletin from The Lord of the Rings, uh, the last uh, volume, Return of the King, where Frodo and Sam are on the last leg of their journey off to destroy the, the ring, and the path has been hard, and it's only getting worse. All they see in front of them is darkness and struggle to the point where, where Sam, usually the optimist, is really disillusioned and thinks that they can't possibly have enough to get there, to make it. And then we get this line, at the deepest point of despair, the author puts it like this, there, peeping among the cloud rack, above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. And the beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. His song in the tower had been defiance rather than hope, for then he was thinking of himself. Now, for a moment, his own fate, even his masters, ceased to trouble him. He crawled back in the brambles and laid himself by Frodo's side, and putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. You see what happens when when we just allow a small glimmer of this hope to start filling our hearts, all of a sudden, it overwhelms the things that terrify us, and it brings peace. Christ didn't come to make tiny little changes in your life. He didn't come to give you a plan on how you should live differently and clean up your life so that you can uh, rid yourself of problems. He didn't even come to make you cope better with the things that stress you out. He, he came to make heaven and earth new. He came to make you new. He came to make all things new. That's what this vision calls us to do. It, call, it, it allows us to be bold and to live risky lives. It allows us to face the trouble that we see and to actually shrink it. But finally, I want to look at the way it teaches us something profound about ourselves. It teaches us something about our desires. It actually reorients them. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, argues that everyone wants heaven. Everyone. Christians and even non-Christians they long for it. They desire it. Even if you're not particularly religious, you long for it because it is built into your heart. And he says that it's the reason why there's nothing that can satisfy us in this world. Sure, there's many things that promise to satisfy. There are things that, that give that offer of hope. Enough so that you think that you're on the right path. But before long, the thing that gives you joy one moment starts to make your heart ache because it's unfulfilled. Because you still have something deeper you're longing for. 
And Lewis says that there's two ways that we deal with that desire that never gets satisfied. There's the fool's way. The fool actually believes that satisfaction is still out there in the things. But he blames the fact that he hasn't been satisfied on the things themselves. So I'm unsatisfied in my marriage, so what do I do? I look for a new spouse. I'm unsatisfied in my career, so I go and search for a new job. I'm always looking for something bigger and better. I want to to, uh, climb the scale until finally I get to the very top and find satisfaction. And that idea of progress is so tempting because that's how many of us were taught to live. I'm going to seek out the best education so that I can get the best job, so that I can have the the best career and and have the most fulfillment in life. And then we get to the top if we're lucky And we say, this can't be it. There must be more. Lewis says, you're not making progress. You have been on a treadmill the whole time. The fool's way tries again and again to find that satisfaction in the things of the world. But he then says that there's another wrong way to do it, and that's the disillusioned, sensible man. That's the one who feels this desire but suppresses it, who says, you know, really, that's the, that's the stuff of youth. That's the stuff of daydreaming. I'm going to lower my expectations and try to just find satisfaction in the things of this world. I'm going to be content at lowering my sights. That, too, misses the point. The third thing he offers is the Christian way. He says, these desires are too strong. You cannot deny them. But you also need to acknowledge that they cannot be satisfied in this life. He says, if I find myself in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Now, that realization shouldn't make us despise the things of this world. It shouldn't make us unthankful for the things that we have here. But it should start to make sense of our desires. It should start to to make sense of the ache in our heart and to, to reorient us. I want to take it one step further than Lewis, though, because I think he leaves out something that this passage is is tapping into. Because that desire is not simply looking for heaven itself. The new earth described as a city is described in the most glorious terms, the most beautiful, costly, sought-after materials, jewels and gold and pearls. But that's not the most glorious thing. It's not that we have this ache for a nicer home and better stuff. The most glorious thing in this entire vision is God himself. You can't escape it. God is all over this new heaven and new earth. He's present and active everywhere. He is in the midst of his people. Now you may say, well, wait a minute. Isn't God everywhere now? Isn't that what God is? God is omnipresent. He's in all places at all times. 
Well, the way Scripture talks about it, that that's not true in the same way. Yes, he is present everywhere at all times, but he's not present the same way. From the very beginning, God did present himself to all people in all places, but he also revealed himself and his presence specifically in one place, the temple. God said, if you want to find me savingly, if you want to have that relationship with me where we can commune together, I am only found in the temple. And then in the Gospels, we see it gets better. It's not in the temple. It's actually in a person that Jesus himself is the temple. He is is one you can talk to and interact with and, and see and touch. But this vision gives us something even more remarkable than that. The entire world becomes the temple. On that day, God will commune with us everywhere we go. You know, it's, it's remarkable that many depictions of heaven or the afterlife leave this particularly out. They simply focus on us. They explore what we will be like. They explore whether we'll like eternity or we'll dislike it. I was uh, looking at a couple of different TV shows that are, are going on right now. One, an Amazon Prime show called Forever, where this couple uh, both die. Sorry to give away the first episode. Um, they, they die, and they, they both find themselves in what is maybe the most boring depiction of the afterlife I've ever seen. They show up in this suburban subdivision uh, where uh, people everywhere in that neighborhood is other people who have died. And there is no clue on how they're supposed to live. There's no instructions on what heaven is like or no answers to the big questions. They just sort of figure out how to live life again, very much similar to the life they had lived, except now they can't die. And really, when you understand the show, it's just teaching them that they're still learning and growing as people. They're still developing and learning how to relate to each other. But it's all about them. Uh, The Good Show. I I won't give spoilers on this, but another show about the afterlife. And Again, if if you look at that, it's all about them growing as characters, developing, learning from their errors and mistakes and trying to become better people. In both, God is not present. Hardly an afterthought. That is not the picture of, of Revel- that Revelation gives. It reveals our deepest desires. And to be honest with you, our deepest desires is not to spend eternity trying to figure out ourselves. That type of narcissism actually sounds horrible. We're designed to know God. We're designed to have a relationship with him. Even more, this picture says we are designed to be a bride. That's the depth of the relationship we're called to have with our creator. I mean, if this is really true, if that's the deep desire that God's put into our hearts, then this needs to radically change the way we live now. That our job now is to get ready for the wedding. Is to learn about this God. 
to grow in knowledge of him, to commune with his people, to, to, uh, to read his word, to pray, to fellowship with him. We're made for this type of, of relationship. That is what happens when someone comes to Christ. When someone comes to Christ, they start to awaken to this whole world where God becomes the most significant thing in their lives and they're drawn to know more about him. They're drawn to love him and to praise him. And so they can hear and resonate with the last verses of Revelation 22 where it calls us to say, come, Lord Jesus, I want you now. Now it's true that before you come to Christ, this doesn't seem to make any sense. And we may acknowledge that there's some unmet desire in our lives, but we hardly think that that ache in our hearts is really calling out to have a relationship with God. But that's exactly how this passage plays out. You'll notice it doesn't start with us calling out, Come, Lord Jesus. But even before those great final lines of revelation, before the church calls out, come, we see in verse 17, actually, it's an invitation for us to come. Come, all you who are thirsty, all you who desire water of life, come. Before you know to call out to Christ, to call him to come, it's an invitation for you to come. Come and see if this will satisfy you. And when you find that it does, then you will do what it says in those final lines. You will cry out to Christ. Come now. Let's prepare now even to whet our appetites for his coming. To increase that hunger for him as we prepare to come to this meal. Let's pray.